0: Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction, and really just addiction in general. Welcome back. I'm so glad that you're here with us in episode 18. I just wanted to start with a quick reminder that we are on day four, day four of our Talking Back Challenge. So if you haven't joined us yet, you can join us on the website, on the right-hand side. uh, There's a new little button there that says, Join Now, Talking Back Challenge. Also, you can join us on Facebook now. Are you so excited? I'm so excited. So get on. You can join the community at Worth Recovery. Join us on Facebook. Also on Pinterest, all, um, some of my favorite recovery quotes and things on addiction are, I've, I've collected on Pinterest for you. All those links are on the website. You can get on there and, uh, and get going and get started and, and connect with us. I'm so excited about all the different things that are going to be coming for Worth Recovery. Let's get into today's topic, episode 18, not about sex. It's not about sex. I'd like to begin today by reminding you, though, that I am not affiliated with any 12-step program, any addiction recovery treatment uh, system or therapeutic clinic. All I am is an addict. I'm a, a very imperfect one at that, just speaking about my own experiences in recovery. And during the last five years of recovery, and really that hasn't been very long, I feel like my experiences have been both vast and deep. And as a woman in treatment for sex addiction, there have been many, many challenging moments. Many times I wanted to give up, I wanted to walk away, or just declare that it was too hard. And yet, once I had seen my own addiction, my disease, my disorders, I knew that the only way out was through. There was no going back. I had to face this head-on with all of its shame, all of its stereotypes, and all the stigmas that are associated with it. Sometimes, I hate admitting this, but I'm going to, sometimes I get jealous. I would say borderline resentful of people with other addictions. I I don't let it go too far, though, because I don't want to add it to my fourth step resentment list, right? So I try really hard to keep it under control and not let it get too far. It's much more socially acceptable to say I have a gambling, alcohol, or drug addiction, or a food addiction, or a spending addiction, or I'm a workaholic. Any of those are much more socially acceptable than to say I have a sex addiction. Recently, so many of my family members or friends have had brushes with addiction. A distant relative, a sister-in-law-in-law, a friend's son, many others Their reactions have run the spectrum, sometimes talking about these addicts with sympathy all the way to banning them from their households, telling them that they are never again to darken their doorway. Usually, their reactions have served to reaffirm my decision to be very careful about who I share my addiction with. You probably wouldn't think that, being that it's now all over the internet and all over iTunes for anyone to listen to. But I have been very careful over the last five years of who I share this with. Back to the point here. Sometimes I wish my addiction was something more socially acceptable to talk about. The shame, the stereotypes, the stigmas that accompany sex addiction are offensive. Yet I understand that stereotypes and stigmas also are there and begin for a reason. I remember sitting in a twelve-step meeting one week. I don't know. I think I was probably about a year into recovery. We had a new woman attending that week. I love having new women at our meetings. When we had a newcomer, we always did kind of a modified meeting where we would each take a few minutes and share about a little bit, share a little bit about our stories. We would discuss what life was like, why we started the program, and what our life was like now. I always loved hearing my recovery friends share about their stories. It just uplifted me so much. At the end, we would always give the newcomer a few minutes to talk if they wished. When it came her turn, I could tell she was uncomfortable. Her body language spoke louder than she did. And then she said, I'm not sure I belong here. I've never been a prostitute like all of you. All I do is look at pornography. I'm not a prostitute. (laughs) I think she probably said it a few times. I'm not a prostitute. I'm not a prostitute. She kept saying that. After she was done, the silence was thick. None of the women there had ever traded money for sex or been prostituted. Her revulsion at our stories and experiences was obvious. She left as soon as possible and, to my knowledge, never returned, which is one of the saddest things I've ever heard, because there was sitting in that room a group of women who could understand her, support her, and help her change. If there was one thing I could help people understand, one thing that might help break through the shame and the social stigma of a sex addiction, it is this. Sex addiction is not about sex. Just as alcoholism isn't really about alcohol, or drug use isn't really about drugs. It's about a variety of things. One of the most prominent being escape. Escape from the circumstances and feelings we find ourselves in. Escape from reality, escape using anything we can to change and alter our mental or physical state because we lack the knowledge, the skills, and the ability to deal with our own circumstances and reality. I remember telling my therapists early on an experience I had while acting out. This was part of my powerless inventory, and this was one of the reasons I knew I was powerless over my sexual addiction. Some memories from acting out are burned into my mind. I can close my eyes and very clearly see the ceiling of Nick's bedroom. His dark blue walls gave way to the light gray ceiling. A simple light fixture hung in the middle of the room. One of the light bulbs was burnt out, casting kind of a slight shadow over part of the room, even though it was the middle of the day. I had worn my favorite jeans, a white t-shirt, and a green zip-up sweater hoodie. It was my favorite sweater though I had discarded it while we had been talking earlier. I don't remember really all the details of the discussion, but I remember how patiently he listened to me vent and talk. I'm sure about family and work drama, as that was my whole life. I felt I had really monopolized the conversation, but I adored the way that he hung on every word I had to say, asking me questions and sharing his opinion in a caring way. He wasn't dismissive or frustrated with me, even though we had polar opposite, like drastically different core values. But the conversation part was over, and here we were now, me laying on the bed, staring at the ceiling, and he starts kissing my neck as we begin to be physically intimate with each other. I knew he had been waiting for this moment. I, on the other hand, was fighting tears, doing everything I could, trying to think of something, anything that would prevent me from crying. I didn't want this part, not today. But this is this is what we did. He listened to me, we did our thing in bed, and I would go home. That had been our pattern for the last six months. It wasn't a relationship per se. We didn't go places or ever leave the house. I had tried that early on, thinking that we were actually dating. Yeah, <laughs> That was my denial, but we weren't. He listened to me, responded to me, and in return, used me and sent me home. One time, I had said no. He laughed at me and said, are you serious? This is what we do. When I insisted, sat up, and started to put my shoes on, he became angry, really angry. He pushed me down on the bed, and for the first time since we had been acting out together, I was scared, really scared. I recognized that if he wanted, he could have his way with me, and I wouldn't be able to escape. He was stronger than I was. I said no again and that I wanted to leave. He held me down for a moment and and then relented. I hightailed it out of there, never to return again. See, what I was getting from Nick wasn't about sex for me. It was about being seen and acceptance. Nick always validated and accepted everything I had to say. Everything. He might not agree with it. In fact, most of it, he didn't agree with at all. Like I said, we had polar opposite core values. He didn't have a faith or religion like I did. His family was small and had no real interaction with each other, so there wasn't a lot of drama. But he listened patiently and tried to see my point of view. Or so I thought that what was going on. As I explained that to my therapist, he brought me back to reality after I explained how I felt about this whole thing. Amy, he said, sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. And then he said something like this. I'm sure this isn't word for word, but it's as close as I can get What you're explaining sounds like a trade of pseudo-intimacy. You wanted to be heard, listened to, understood, respected, emotional, and cognitive intimacy. So you traded physical intimacy to get the emotional intimacy you wanted. He went on, but I bet neither was satisfying for either of you. He was right. It wasn't. It wasn't at all. In fact, I hated acting out. I hated myself every single time I did it. But I still couldn't stop. And in many cases, I felt like it was just the price that I paid to get what I really needed. So let's explore this idea real quick of an intimacy disorder. What is an intimacy disorder exactly? On their website, the Life Healing Center defines intimacy disorders like this. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Quote, when discussed in terms of interpersonal relationship, intimacy can occur on intellectual, experiential, emotional, and sexual levels. Cognitive intimacy can develop between people who find pleasure and or meaning in the exchange of ideas and the discussion of issues or events. Experiential intimacy can occur when individuals engage in a shared activity, such as a sport, a job, or a hobby. Emotional intimacy involves the exchange of feelings, empathy, and understanding. Sexual intimacy occurs via pleasurable physical interactions. Relationships between friends, professional colleagues, and family members may be based upon cognitive, experiential, and or emotional intimacy, while ideal romantic relationships will involve all four types. Close quote. So, did you know that about intimacy? That there are at least four major types of intimacy? Cognitive, experiential, emotional, and physical? I didn't even know that at first. When I heard the term intimacy, I just assumed it was about sex. I had an intimacy disorder, and so I had a sex addiction. Of course I did. But as I learned more, I found out that there was a lot more to this addiction. Over the next few weeks, even months I would say, as I continued to explore this idea with my therapist, I thought of more and more experiences in my life that back up this idea. After several months of acting out with a particular partner, one night he said something like this to me. You know, Amy, you are one of the most brilliant and intelligent women I know, as long as you're vertical. The minute you lay down, become horizontal, you have no thoughts, opinions, ideas, or personality. It's really frustrating. Wow, I, I, I didn't even know how to respond to that. I had really no idea what he meant or what to say. I was the same person standing up or lying down. I, I didn't get it at all. All I could do was try and think of something, anything, to keep myself from crying. Uh, That's a theme that I have, right? I couldn't even advocate enough for myself or my own needs to get up and leave. Uh, We were at my house, so ask him to leave, right? If my other experiences weren't proof, here was one. I definitely had an intimacy disorder. Here's another one. My first relationship in recovery was, in my opinion, one of the healthiest relationships I had ever had. I enjoyed listening to him and enjoyed spending time with him. I was careful and we didn't act out. I was so proud of myself and was really enjoying myself. After a few months, maybe I think it was about six months, though, we broke up. It felt like a mutual thing. I always thought it was a mutual thing. I wanted kids and he didn't want any more kids. He already had to. Kind of a big deal. And we had some issues with spirituality. I thought the breakup was centered around our lack of common goals. A few months later, we ran into each other at lunch in the downtown area where we both worked, so we decided to grab lunch together. It was good to see him, and of course, I asked about his life and whether he was dating someone new. And he was. And then he said something like this I don't really know what you want me to say, Amy. You're prettier than she is, smarter, more intelligent, more fun. I really miss watching you lay on my couch and just read, but with her, I always know where I stand at every minute of the day. And with you, I never knew. I never knew what you were thinking, what you wanted, what you needed. With her, I always know. Wow. I showed up at my therapist's office that week, a total basket case. I had an intimacy disorder. I thought stopping my behavior, my sexually acting out, would save me, would change me, would cure me. But here I was, a relationship I thought was totally great, and he was telling me that it wasn't. Was, was that the truth? Was I emotionally distant and unable to communicate my feelings, needs, wants, and desires? Wow, that's a tough pill to swallow. Continuing from the Life Healing Center website, quote, in broad terms, individuals who struggle with sex, relationship, and or love addiction have problems related to the development maintenance, and expression of appropriate types and levels of intimacy, close quote. Um, that totally describes me. It was never about the sex. It just became the tool I used to find the intimacy I needed, whether cognitive, experiential, or emotional. I had problems related to the development, maintenance, and expression of appropriate types of intimacy. There were times in my acting out when it was all about the chase. I wanted someone to chase me, to want me and desire me. I was clever and witty. I would challenge men to keep my attention, to see if they could keep up with me, to see if they could keep me from getting bored with our conversation. I would flirt and debate a wide variety of topics, really needing cognitive intimacy. And at the end, I always paid the winner with cyber or phone sex. My exchange of pseudo intimacy. I went through a period of time when I needed experiences. I would arrange to meet men at certain places. We would meet at museums, at movies, at concerts, at restaurants. We would experience food, art, films, and music together. I would repay with intense makeout sessions in the back seats of cars and sometimes more. Again, trading pseudo intimacy. And of course, there was always the need for emotional intimacy. For that, I had a few regular men I would trade emotional intimacy for physical intimacy, like Nick we talked about earlier, or the man Steve I've talked in other episodes about. These were usually longer-term acting out partners for me, people that were local and that learned my life. We developed an emotional history, so I wasn't constantly explaining things to new people. But in every case, there was a trade. And in every case, the trade was not negotiable. I couldn't decide one time that I didn't want to trade. I had tried that and was frightened when it happened. That day, driving home from Nick's house after I said no, I called Steve, another long-term acting out partner. I told him about what happened and that I was scared. Steve laughed at me and said, don't ever try to do that with me. We didn't see each other for a few months after that, but eventually we did see each other again. I went back. I always ended up going back because I was powerless over it. A while later, I was discussing this with my therapist again, the idea of an intimacy disorder. I was really struggling with a relationship in my life. I remember very clearly the day my therapist said to me, I would venture to say you have probably never allowed anyone to take care of you or meet your needs. You have only ever used other people to meet your own needs. I know he didn't mean to hurt my feelings, but he did. He was trying to explain to me why I was having problems with this particular relationship, and he was totally right. I had used this person to meet some intimacy needs over a period of time, and when my need was gone, I saw no additional purpose for them in my life. This person was upset that I was so willing to let go of a multi-year, cognitive, experiential, and emotionally intimate relationship. And to be honest, I was having a hard time understanding it myself. Yet everything in me was saying, mission accomplished, done, move on, no more use. More evidence of my intimacy disorder that had nothing to do with sex at all, whatsoever. From what I have read and studied and my experience with other addicts, addiction is never about the alcohol, the drug, or the substance. It's not about the money you earn or lose while gambling, nor the releases you experience engaging in sexual behavior. At its core, it has nothing to do with any of these things. I love this quote from Dr. Linda Hatch. She says, quote, addictions are an adaption or coping mechanism, usually beginning early in life as a way to handle stress and regulate emotion. Addictive behaviors are a way to adapt that does not depend on another person for comfort or support. If other people are involved in the addictive behavior, it is because they facilitate or support the addict using a drug or behavior, which will distract, stimulate, or soothe themselves. Close quote. I love that idea because it's true, and it helps to explain my own addiction and my own addictive behaviors. It's a way to adapt that does not depend on another person. If another person is involved, it's only because the addict needs them to facilitate the behavior that distracts, stimulates, or soothes themselves. She continues, Addiction is intimacy avoidance. Because of their early life experiences, addicts are afraid of intimacy. Depending upon their early experiences, addicts will predictably approach the prospect of being intimate with, and she lists four things here, fear of abandonment, The addict tends to do and say what the other person wants rather than what they really think or feel. Second, fear of rejection. The addict feels that rejection will be devastating and will reinforce an already insecure self-concept. Third, fear of engulfment. The addict fears losing their separate identity and becoming totally absorbed into another person. And fourth, fear of conflict. The addict fears the other person's anger and the sense that they cannot stick up for themselves or set boundaries. She continues, addicts prefer to avoid getting close beyond a certain point. Patrick Karn states that intimacy is the point in a relationship when there is a deeper attachment and that this requires profound vulnerability. He calls this the being known fully and staying anyway part of relationships. Close quote. This was me. Okay, let's be honest. This is me. I'm afraid of intimacy. I struggle to understand what appropriate intimacy is in all the four areas that we talked about. I feel like I'm getting better at developing intimacy, but I definitely struggle to maintain it. I'm afraid of conflict, but more especially, I'm afraid of engulfment, of losing the self I have fought so hard to discover and define over the past five years of recovery. I'm also very afraid of hurting people. My intimacy disorder involved using a lot of people, some of which... Had attachments to me that I didn't honor and wasn't respectful of. I struggle to trust myself again that I won't hurt other people. I struggle with boundaries, connection, and intimacy. The fear associated with rejection is real and can show up in the slightest of comments from a coworker or a manager. In all of my relations with other human beings, I struggle with intimacy. This is way deeper and way beyond just the behaviors I have as a sex addict. And this is what I wish all people could understand. Addiction isn't about the behavior. It's just a symptom of a bigger, deeper problem. Whatever that addiction is, it is just the tool the person has chosen to distract, stimulate, or soothe themselves. Some say we shouldn't even call sex an addiction. That the label is damaging and that the shame, stereotypes, and stigmas cause deeper problems. I I can relate to that. Typically, when someone says another is a sex addict, the picture in their head isn't of someone struggling to relate to other people. Even I've been guilty of this. I've been judgmental of others whose behavior was, quote, worse than mine and whose addiction progressed further than mine did. But I don't agree. It needs to be called an addiction. The addiction label has been so freeing for me. Understanding the powers that work beyond my control... Understanding the 12 steps, using the addiction methodologies for treatment and understanding have helped me change my life. Because as I have pulled back my addictive behavior using addiction treatment, I now have my intimacy disorder to deal with. The addiction was just a symptom, but a symptom that needed a name and a treatment plan all its own. As that part of my life has stabilized, I can look now at the root of the problem, my intimacy disorder, and work to figure that out. If you are struggling with a sex addiction or know someone who is, or if you're struggling with any addiction or know anyone who is, please understand that it isn't about the alcohol, the substance, the gambling, the spending, the food, the rage, the work, or the sex. It's the fear of intimacy, the fear of being known. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that addicts should get a free pass. I'm not saying that their behavior should be tolerated, accepted, and that they should just be loved. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, boundaries, accountability, and consequences help us build and understand appropriate intimacy. I know that there are addicts out there whose behavior has progressed so far that they need the consequences that they are now facing. And those consequences can be severe. I get that. I understand that. I understand that that's where a lot of the stigma and a lot of the shame and a a lot of the stereotype comes from. I get that. But for most of us, that's not the case. Most of us just need to understand more intimacy. In closing, I want to share this last quote from Dr. Linda Hatch. Quote, intimacy is the ability to be real with another person. In its essence, Intimacy is the connection between two people who are equals and are genuine and open about what they are feeling in the moment. In other words, the capacity to be intimate involves the ability to take the risk of being known for who you really are. It is necessarily a willingness to take the risk of getting hurt or rejected. There's so many things in that quote I love. The part that the two people in order to be intimate have to be equal and genuine about what it is that they are feeling in the moment. The idea that it involves risk and being known for who we really are. Rather than reject, shun, or shy away from people already struggling to relate and be intimate with people, let's all try to be a little better at reaching out and being understanding. Let's all be willing to take a little more risk and recognize that we are all afraid of getting hurt or being rejected. We're all afraid of being known We're afraid that if someone actually knows us, everything about us, warts and all, that we will not be accepted. Let's work ourselves to be strong, to love ourselves, to find our own self-worth, and to build the self-worth of others around us. Let's work to build boundaries, to understand our options, to know that we can act in ways that will protect ourselves and enhance our own lives. This is my goal for recovery. My goal for recovery, the reason I keep working at it and keep attending meetings and therapy week after week, the reason I put this podcast together, the reason I keep going is because I want better relationships. I want to learn to be intimate. I want to understand myself better and learn to relate to others in a meaningful, life-building way. I hope that's your goal too. I hope that's what you want. Because as all of us become better at relating to other people, we all can stop the pattern of addiction in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. Thanks for joining me today. I'm going to post the links of the articles I referenced on the website. I want you to know that sex addiction, it's not about the sex. It's about the intimacy. It's about relating to other people. And I hope that you'll take that with you as you go into life and understand that there are people out there struggling, struggling to be known, wanting to be known, wanting to build relationships and struggling to make it happen. If we can all be a little more loving, a little more patient, a little more understanding, we can help them and we can stop the cycle of addiction in so many lives. As always, I want you to know that no matter what is going on in your life, No matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel right now in this moment, no matter how people respond to you when they find you're a sex addict or any addict at all, you are worth recovery. You are worth it. 100% worth it. Keep working at it. I think about you. I pray for you. I love you. Until next time, Amy.